Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round on the podcast, we're looking at the 2010 movie The Social Network, which might be a very odd topic to talk about, because if you've seen this film, which is now you know, more than a decade old, it's about Facebook and how it was created. So how on earth am I going to be getting any history out of that? Well, there needs to be a discussion about invention throughout history and also about the storage of knowledge throughout history and also about how social media and the digital revolution is why you're listening to this podcast in the first place. So... This is a big, big topic, and I hope you come on a very interesting journey with me. If you're not entirely aware, I've already told you Social Network's all about the creation of Facebook. It stars Jesse Eisenberg. He gets to play Mark Zuckerberg, and it's directed by David Fincher. You might know him from other films such as Seven and Fight Club. He, he likes his edgy movies, and it's written by Aaron Sorkin, the guy behind The West Wing and The Chicago Seven. And, you know, he's a director as well, but he's known for his snappy dialogue. And indeed, in this movie, there are a whole bunch of scenes that are created for the sake of a drama. Which brings me on to my first topic, the difference about a documentary, a movie that's based on real life events, and a movie that's inspired by real events. Because they have three layers, three levels of expectation in terms of accuracy. If you are watching a documentary about an event, let's pick something sort of fairly uncontroversial, the Battle of Waterloo. We all know that Napoleon lost, okay? So the Battle of Waterloo, 1815, you would expect that the documentary's done their homework. Obviously, there's nobody alive from that era now. So there would be you know, various historians talking through the first-hand accounts, the historical documentation. And when they say it's complicated, that's because that situation is complicated and hard to summarise. And there might be real evidence of the uniforms worn at the time. They might have a brown bess musket from the British. They might have cannons. 
Uh, and there might even be some recreations, but they'll be very carefully supervised to be historically accurate. So when you're watching a documentary, yes, I'm aware sometimes things are biased and obviously there are times when they are have an eye to the audience, but they really, really do have to get it right. I mean, the Battle of Waterloo really does have to happen in 1815. You really do have to have the Duke of Wellington and Blucher on one side and you've got to have Napoleon and Marshal Ney on the other and so on and so forth. That's just what you have to have in a documentary. But then you get a movie like there was in the 1960s, a Waterloo movie, at which point it is based on real events. And when a movie says based on real events, that means the overarching story is accurate. And we've probably done our homework in terms of things like uniforms and weapons and so on and so forth. However, various events have sometimes been fictionalized just to so you can understand what the story is. Perhaps sometimes there are characters who never actually existed. They're a composite of four or five other people. So you can understand the, the point that, that's being made. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've seen the excellent HBO TV series, uh, short series about Chernobyl called Chernobyl. And that is so well researched and it's so well done. It's an amazing, remarkable TV series. I really do encourage you to do it to the point where they actually explain the Chernobyl disaster and why it happened in a way that you can understand without a degree in particle physics. It's, it's amazing. However, there's always this female scientist and she is a composite of a whole bunch of scientists who were sort of like working with the proper named characters who all really, really existed. And because of that, she's probably the most underwritten character because she's always right. She's always in the right place. And she doesn't really have much in the way of flaws or anything like that. So if she, like, she's the one, one tiny little piece of grit in an otherwise perfect production, I thoroughly recommend you watch that. When you're looking at something like The Social Network, that is based on real history. In other words, they got the right people, they got the basic overall plot, but things sometimes have been sensationalized to make it more of a drama. If you think of your real life, okay, if you wake up in the morning, that's the beginning of the day. And when you go to bed, I guess that's the end of the day. And somewhere in the middle, you'll probably have lunch. So there is a beginning, middle and end to a day. But generally, if you think about events in your life, they kind of, they don't neatly end and then another thing happens after it. You know, quite often there's crossover and things are messy because that's what life is. And a movie, just a narrative can't allow that. So that's based on. Then we get inspired by. And inspired by true events means there's a thing that happened and now we're going to make up everything else. I'm not really going to go into movies that, that do that. And to be fair, at the start of the movie 300, they don't say based on or inspired by. They just sort of leap into the story. But a movie like 300 would be a good example of inspired by because it's clearly hyper-realistic, sort of fantastical, silly at times. This is Sparta! The outfits are all completely wrong. There are actual orcs in it and monsters. So clearly it's inspired by the idea of the 300 Spartans at the hot gates fighting the Persian army. But after that, if you're going to watch that and then write a university level dissertation on the Persian Greek wars, you're going to fail badly, by the way. So my point here is that there are different levels of quality. And even if you are watching something which won an Oscar for best screenplay, and it was based on a book as well, a best adapted 
adapted screenplay is what it won for. So Aaron Sorkin wrote the actual screenplay and he got an Oscar for it. This is a high quality production. David Fincher is a bit of a Marmite kind of director, as I mentioned with Seven and Fight Club. Those are poweringly powerful movies, but I can understand why they're not everybody's cup of tea, all right? So with that in mind, a lot of considerable effort went into it. However, is this the same thing as a documentary about the creation of Facebook? Absolutely not. What's interesting is that when David Fincher started looking into we could turn this into a movie and Aaron Sorkin started fiddling around with the script, it came out in 2010 and it wasn't all filmed in the same year. So really the idea and the script and the gear started turning in 2008. So when you consider that, that Facebook was made after the year 2000, we're not far off the creation of a thing. It, it would be like creating a movie about the Battle of Waterloo just sort of five years after the Battle of Waterloo. Now, obviously, the technology didn't exist, but you can see how it's still fresh in everybody's minds. And by 2008, to give you an idea, Facebook had about 500 million regular users. So 500 million, half a billion people were using Facebook in 2008. So it was clear that Facebook was a big deal. But now let's fast forward 10 plus years. And now at the end of 2020, the actual numbers that they were released is they had 2.7 billion regular users. That's five times the amount of people that were using it in 2008. And that's kind of a, a hard number to get your head around. To give you an idea, the most populous country in the world is China, and the second most populous country in the world is India. And if you combine those two populations, it's give or take about the same amount of people who use Facebook regularly. That is a mind-blowing thing. Which brings me on to the next point about invention. Humanity has been inventing so many different things. You might want to think of the t-shirt that did not exist a thousand years ago, and yet you happily throw on a t-shirt. Uh, pillows, duvets, these are very boring but important day-to-day -day inventions, like the iron and, and other such things. So some inventions get a lot of flag waving. They, you know, people go, oh, you know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. That's another thing. That, that was invented uh, in the uh, early 20th century. Bread has been around for more than 10,000 years. So, <laughs> or some kind of unleavened type bread. It is interesting what we focus on. We tend to think the wheel is a game changer, but actually it really isn't. The wheel can be measured in a few thousand years old, but there have been several civilizations, most notably Incas, that invented an entire architectural system, were able to build you know, masterpieces like Machu Picchu without the use of a wheel. They had rollers, they had llamas and alpacas to pull stuff around, but they did not have, if you like, a, a chariot or an ox-drawn carriage or something like that. So it shows you, you can actually build a complex agrarian society with a sort of semi-feudal sort of concepts underneath it, a top dog, whatever you want to call them, without the use of wheels. But then there are other inventions that clearly changed everything. For example, fire. We, we tend to say, you know, that's one of the first inventions. Of, obviously, there is natural occurrences of fire. But once we were able to harness fire, we could cook food, we could get more nutrients into our body quicker. Basically, the way we're able to have these really big brains, which use up a lot of energy, is we've basically got a secondary stomach now, a stomach that's outside of our body, and that's what we call cooking. 
if you were to eat exactly the same thing that a great ape like a gorilla would eat, you would very slowly starve to death. Your stomach just simply cannot extract enough nutrients out of the raw vegetables that they would be eating, for example. You would basically slowly die. We, we have now evolved to the point where we need to cook food. It may be meat. I mean, obviously, that's a huge nutrient source. That's why we've, we like eating meat. But obviously, if you're a vegetarian, which I know Greg is, for example, you know, even then, you still roasting the veg vegetables, breaking down the tough cell walls, plant cell walls. If we can get a process to do it, i.e. cooking, that saves us energy from doing it in our stomachs. So if you are going to just only eat raw fruit and vegetables, you're going to be super healthy, pretty regular too, but you are going to slowly be starving yourself, basically. So fire's a big one. Writing, suddenly when we could store information and pass it down from generation to generation rather than from oral traditions, that was a huge game changer. You could get in, in the world of science, uh, vaccination created by Edward Jenner to count initially smallpox, but vaccination obviously reached out. And indeed, smallpox has been eradicated from the natural world because of humanities and specifically the World Health Organization's process in, in successfully vaccinating the world's population. We very nearly got to that with polio as well, but then it sort of backslid because of lack of funding, but also some religious organizations, particularly in Africa, saying it was evil and bad. But polio is far worse than your religious beliefs, okay? And also antibiotics. It's worth remembering that childbirth, look, it's, it's never a fun experience. I have two children. I've watched my wife go through it. But women would regularly die. You know, in some countries, there were before antibiotics. And it is worth remembering, sort of surgery, infections. As soon as you cut yourself, you're open to all the biological entities, the single cell organisms coming into your, into your body, and your body might not be able to fend them off unless you've got antibiotics. It is also worth pointing out antibiotics don't work against viruses. They're very different organisms. So please, please don't hassle your doctor if you're feeling down with something like a flu. No amount of antibiotics is going to make you feel better because bacteria are differences are different to viruses. So yes, lots of different inventions have physically changed the world around us and how we've been able to deal with things. And then we come to the internet and social media. Going back to that writing, there are times in history when you'll read about sort of a great destructive period, like in uh, 1258 when the Mongols sacked Baghdad. It was the end of the Muslim golden age. This great era of poetry and mathematics and philosophy and sort of scholarly subjects started in the late 700s and went on for about 500 years. But Baghdad being very much the epicenter of all this knowledge and learning. But when the Mongols got in to, to Baghdad, not only did they massacre the entire population, Hard to know exactly how many people were there. It might well have been 400,000, 500,000 people killed. This is before the era of guns as well. This had to be done manually. Horrific acts of destruction, but also the River Tigris ran black with ink because they, they emptied out all the libraries and chucked all those books and manuscripts into the river. And in a weird way, that feels almost as bad as the deaths of the human beings. All that knowledge was lost. We have no idea what didn't survive. And you, you know, you get it, the, the, the great fire in the Library of Alexandria and other times when there's just been this horrific tragedy of destruction of knowledge. It feels it's sort of evil to us. 
But now, with the internet, for good or bad, things can be preserved forever. And that is an interesting concept. You just can't lose stuff anymore. Indeed, Google, there was a court, several court cases about the right to be forgotten, basically arguing that on minor misdemeanors, people might be able to search up and find out that you've done a very petty crime. Maybe 10 years ago, you served your time, never reoffended, but that's still sitting there out in the ether somewhere on the internet, and they will have the right to be forgotten. They want to take that off. That's now a law. But you are getting the the libraries of the world digitizing and, and museums digitizing everything they've got inside them so that in the future we'll be able to look at these parchments that might have perhaps been irrevocably damaged just, just through natural exposure to, to air and things like that. With that in mind, let's jump into the social media itself. The interesting thing about Facebook is it was not the first form of social media. I remember hearing uh, news stories about something called Friends Reunited. The angle being that these people were reconnecting many years after going to school, and this had led to people catching up with their teenage crush and accidentally ended up having affairs and things like that. And it, it was such a weird idea. I paid no attention to it. And then you got things like MySpace and Bebo and all these social medias, these websites that basically people add their own content to, where they can interact and reach out with people. The, all these things came before Facebook. But Facebook, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg, while he was still at university, had worked out the way to make people come back for more. Now, the thing about social media, and you get experts talking about this, is stickiness. You will probably have your favorite websites. One of them might well be Facebook. But what's interesting is there's now slowly over time, because, you know, Facebook was created in the early 2000s. And as I said, by 2008, half a billion people were using it. If we say 2008, that's sort of like 12, 13 years ago. And if you were like, let's say, 15 then, you're now 28. You might now be married. You might be thinking about settling down and, and having kids, in which case, sorry, you're not cool anymore. I have a 14-year-old and 12-year-old, and they don't use Facebook. They use Instagram. They use Snapchat. They use WhatsApp. There, there are always new stuff out there. Now, of course, Instagram is actually owned by Facebook. They bought it. To, this is a way to make sure that they remain relevant. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But social media has utterly changed the world. And, and this is the weird thing. You might not think the social network, there was great debate at the time about, are we even going to make a movie about this? Who, who will really care about Facebook in, in five, ten years' time? Turns out most of the world, <laughs> as it happens. But if you like, that's not really what Aaron Sorkin was writing about. What Aaron Sorkin, and this is where we sort of go back to the sort of like based on a true story, is yes, while it is literally about the creation of Facebook and sort of the various legal wranglings that went around it, what it's ultimately about is a very old story where somebody has created something wonderful. Somebody has a power, a, a secret, if you like, a world-changing thing, and everybody wants a slice of it. How do you protect that? How do you stay safe? How many people do you end up angering just protecting what you rightfully created in the first place? What happens if people start, start copying it and so on and so forth? You could say this about like a magic suit of armor or a magical sword. But in this case, it's really happened. And, and it is worth remembering that Facebook is now so part of our lives. It was a brand that did not exist 20 years ago. That a basically a teenager, or technically a guy in his early 20s, very early 20s, created something that Mark Zuckerberg came from a decent middle class background. He did not come from uber millionaires and things like that. He came from a, a comfortable background. He went to a very good university and he was very, very smart. But he created something that took him into the upper echelons of some of the richest people alive slash ever in history. Just by conjuring something up. He wasn't unique or first on this. And what's interesting is Facebook had created such a hold by 2010, you started getting other websites like Twitter. When I first heard the concept of Twitter, which at the time was only 140 characters, it's sort of, they, people said, it's like Facebook, but you can only write it a sentence at a time. And my response is, well, that will never catch on. And in a way, I was right, because when Twitter first came out, it was kind of touted as the Facebook killer. Just as Facebook killed off MySpace and Bebo, Facebook had no right to to be number one. And so Twitter came in and a lot of money was spent in it and it took more than 10 years to turn a profit. And even now, it's after many, many years of it, it being out there, it still kind of has about the sort of half a billion regular users. So Facebook very quickly got to half a billion. Twitter has ground its way slowly up to half a billion. But we are now in a situation where we're in a social media world. There was a time when, when I first left university that social media just didn't exist. And so in particular, sort of the young women I worked with in my first job, 
there was a woman, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you her, her name then, okay? There was a very impressive woman. I always thought she was, you know, she was so confident. She was funny. She was such so hardworking. I guess I had a bit of a crush on her, but, but more importantly, I really respected her. I really thought, wow, you know, you're going to go places. And her name was Deborah Cass. And of course, the thing is, that was more than 25 years ago. It is highly likely that Deborah has married and got a new surname. In which case, yeah, she hasn't reached out to me on Facebook or LinkedIn or anything like that. So I will never quite know what happened to her. I really hope, I mean, if, if she ever hears this, hi, Deborah. Very fond and positive memories of you. And I really hope that you had that amazing career that I thought you would have back in the mid 1990s. Good luck to you, whatever you've actually done. But if you like, it's natural in life up until social media that people drift in and out of your life. Researchers have shown that generally to create a social network around you, a real social network, you probably have maybe uh, 20 to 30 people that you would like regularly speak to, perhaps meet up with, etc., etc. Obviously, pre-COVID. But the thing is that now with social media, the people you might have linked in with 10, 15 years ago in four jobs ago still know that you exist can still interact with you. So again, it's not that I hold any ill will against these people, but our time has passed. You know, you were this very effective team 15 years ago, and you've all gone off and done different things. You don't need to be filling in with each other anymore. And that's fine. People do tend to drift in and out of your life, apart from core family and perhaps a few core friends. But now with Facebook, the average number of friends that you've got on Facebook is 267. That's the average, which is way more than you could ever possibly interact with. And of course, it's led to all these other societal problems. When I was a child, there was the concept of stranger danger. You know, if, a, if a somebody walked up to you as a little kid on a playground said, do you want to come with me and have some sweets or look at those puppies? You absolutely said no to a stranger. And so staying at home meant that you were safe. But of course, right now, Children have access to the internet and you have to be all over this. Look, I consider myself a responsible adult, but with a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old, it's harder and harder to keep control of what they are consuming and who they're talking to. And, you know, you don't want to be a stick in the mud. And it's interesting how they sort of say, oh, yeah, we can tell when people are faking. It's like, but it's really creepy that people are faking being a 14-year-old kid or something like that. This stuff is out there. And of course, that right to forget, there are people sending pictures. It, again, as a parent, I had to sit down and have a little lecture from, the, from teachers about children sending inappropriate photos to each other or to strangers on the internet. And this suddenly makes your children vulnerable in a whole new way. Of course, I also, when I was reading up initially about the impact of social media on society, this article is probably, I don't know, 10 years old now. And they were saying that the prime ministers and presidents of 2050 are right now making career-ending choices on Facebook or, or wherever, because that's the thing. The, the photos from the wild and crazy parties of my teenage years are genuine photos in the sock drawer and you will never see them. You might have gone to a party, somebody take a photo on their phone of you throwing up into a bush because you had too much to drink and you were 17. But you know, a lot of 17-year-olds invariably try alcohol and sort of go to a silly party or whatever. whatever. But then the year is 2050 and you're the, a respectable prime minister talking about the blight of teenage drinking and then somebody does a Google search and goes, here's you throwing up in a bush. 
you'd care to comment on that. And, and that's the problem. I believe in the future there will be historical and archaeological social media archaeologists, for want of a better phrase, or electronic archaeologists. Because like something like Google Maps, there's again sort of been issues about privacy there, and they sort of like blur out people's faces and stuff like that. But Google Maps has a perfect detailed look of what London, for example, looked like in the year 2010. Now, a decade a little bit more onwards, does that make a huge difference? Not really. But imagine in 500 years' time. It'll be like, wow, we get to see how our ancestors lived. Look at the terrible Ford Cortina there and the awful colour. Is that a cultural thing? You know, people having to guess this stuff. You know, we're, we're getting the information now in a way that historians and archaeologists would have killed for from 500 years ago. You know, the amount of, do of documentary evidence, historical evidence that tells you what happened, but doesn't tell you why it happened or what people were thinking or saying, and yet this is pouring out on TikTok or whatever right now. And it will look like all we're obsessed with is silly cat videos and not a lot else. Of course, like any of these previous inventions that I mentioned, mentioned, for example, the wheel, okay? I mentioned sort of building stuff, but one of the other first uses of the wheel was in ancient Egypt to do war chariots. And the Assyrians and Persians also were into their war chariots. I always wondered why on earth would you have war chariots? They seem really clunky and surely they're not great over rough terrain. Why not just ride the horses? Because this is so far back, we hadn't yet bred horses to carry a full grown man wearing armor on the back of them yet their back would have broken. So instead you get them to pull the chariot around. But that was the tank of like 3000 BC. So pretty much any invention that we can come up with, we will end up creating it as a weapon. Fire was the first one and we all know how devastating fire can be. So while I've talked about the positive sides of social media and I've talked a little bit about the dark side, of course the other side is societies and particularly democracies were all designed without the knowledge that we would eventually have social media. Because this is the problem that we have right now. When I first heard that people are getting their information, uh, their, sorry, their news from Facebook, I thought that meant going on to like BBC's Facebook page and finding out what the BBC had to say on Facebook. But no, what it means is people are going on to that Facebook page that says stuff that I always like, and it might be called something like Patriot Eagle Thunder. And because of freedom of expression and right of freedom of speech, I can say whatever I want. But another way of saying whatever I want is lies. Now, to make, I want to be completely clear about this. You have the right to have any opinion you want. I can't stop you thinking. Think however you want. What I can do is say is you do not have a right to have your own selection of facts. Facts are undisputable things, events, items, etc. Opinions are just how you interpret those things. Now, you know, I think you can see where this is all going, but I, I just want to say you have to be careful. There, there's, there's even videos on talking people down from like conspiracy theories saying maybe you need to sense check this stuff. If it's saying stuff that you really like the look of and lots of other websites of that type are saying the same thing, it's amplifi amplifying it. It's an echo chamber. 
But what you need to do is look at more than the usual news sources. You need to look at, you know, more respected news sources, national news sources, news sources that let's take the BBC which a lot of countries around the world uh, who are sort of anti-British say, well, you do know it's paid for by the government, therefore it's a government mouthpiece. And I understand that logic because technically, yeah, we, we have to pay a TV licence which pays for the BBC. It's, a, in essence, a tax. However, what I find interesting is we basically in Britain, well, in England, uh, we've got, well, actually, no, I'll say Britain. We've got three big parties, OK? We've got the left-wing Labour Party, we've got the right-wing Conservative Party, and we've got the Scottish Na- Nationalist Party, the SNP, up in Scotland. Funnily enough, they don't do very well in any other country. Yes, I know there's Plaid Cymru and the DU, and stuff like that, but SNP, you know, in terms of number of MPs in, in the British Parliament in London, they have the most. There's also the Liberal Democrats, but again, the SNP have more MPs than the Liberal Democrats. So yeah, look, there, there are a number of different parties in the UK. The point is this. They have all, at some point, complained about how biased the BBC are. So I'm going to say, if you have left-wing parties saying, you are being really biased about me, and right-wing parties saying, you're really biased about me, I'm going to say, you probably got it right. Now, before I come to sort of like the wrap-up, I'm just going to remind you guys, please, please spread the love. Please, if you could just tell one other person about this podcast and sort of of spread the word. If you could, I don't know, retweet a link. If you could review this on whatever podcasty thing like Podbean, Podomatic, you know, the the Apple podcasts, whatever it is, please put down a review. This all helps to spread the word. Please, please do that. If you want to say hi, if you want to come up with suggestions, I'm I'm willing to take requests. I'm at Jem Daduccio on Twitter. Bit of social media there for you. So I'm now coming back to the summary. And that is, so what, where do we go next? Of course, the thing with fire and like medicines, which sometimes have been used for nefarious purposes and wheels, etc., is once something's invented, you can't uninvent it. But what you can do is do better when it comes to the sources of information. The social media is, people have referred to this as like the Wild West, but you know what? Even the Wild West kind of had laws. People knew when they were robbing banks and that that was against the law. It's just they could get away with it in somewhere like North Dakota in the 1880s, okay? And that's the thing. I think that, you know, social media is very resistant to, to um, sort of self-censoring itself. And we do have to sort of like respect that people are allowed their points of views. But we should never get to the point of active disinformation, where people just say crazy stuff, hoping it'll be picked up so that their party gains an advantage in an election or something like that. I think stuff like that needs to be locked down. And I think that persistent offenders spreading disinformation. Um, so look, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be partisan, but this is a statement of fact. During the election, uh, electoral um, week of um, the American election in 2020, you had the president of the United States tweeting over and over again stuff about fraudulent election results and stuff like that. And Twitter was constantly putting up little barriers on it saying, this is disputed and so on and so forth. Well, if a normal, regular person was spreading that much disputed information, they would be given a 30-day ban. And I don't care if it's the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, or whoever, if somebody is spreading stuff that there is no factual basis on it, they're allowed their opinion, but you can't start saying there are these facts and never present the facts. 
then I think they, the, whoever they are, no matter what level of power, they get banned. Because everybody's getting banned for the same reason. It's not because I'm left-wing or right-wing. It's because you're spreading disinformation, and that's unhelpful. And it is worth pointing out that, you know, around that election, all this stuff was being said on social media, but when the when Donald Trump's lawyers were actually going into the courtrooms, they never explicitly saying the same things. Because there are implications to lying without any kind of evidence in a courtroom which is why all but one of his court cases were thrown out. Indeed, right at the end of November, Donald Trump paid for a recount in a county in Pennsylvania, hoping it would reveal voter fraud. And by the time they'd finished counting it up, actually Joe Biden ended up getting another 132 votes. Now, that's that's not even a drop in a bucket. It's, it's pointless. But the point is, not only did they not find voter fraud, they actually found slightly more votes for the other guy. And it doesn't take a genius to work out that if you lose an election and if there's any way to try and stop that, some people will absolutely sort of go kicking and screaming. So I implore you that with social media, check your sources. And I've done my best in this podcast to you know, check my sources and to be factually accurate. But you never know. I might have misspoken at some point. And, you know, I don't have a PhD. I am not doing, dialing this in from, I don't know, the University of Birmingham or something like that. So although I try my best, and I hope that if you've listened to this stuff, you see that I have no other bias than trying to entertain you with history. But, yeah. Just be careful out there. And always, always, if it sounds too good to be true, if it sounds so juicy you absolutely love it, then maybe it's a bit more complicated than that. Thanks very much for listening. Another one soon. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.